Welcome to Saints and Humans, a podcast for chaplains who are also human and sometimes better at being humans than saints. I will be sharing my own experiences of being a chaplain and interviewing others to hear their stories and the stories of their families, as well as learning from colleagues we work with in related fields, because it's our own humanity that unites us on this very spiritual journey through a very mortal life. super excited to talk to you today specifically because you were the first person I have met who does work similar to my work and so to find someone who understands that is actually a really big deal to my heart and I'm super excited to be sharing with you today and I also think that a lot of our listeners um, are interested in what we do a little bit And we don't necessarily talk about it a lot in groups just because we don't want to traumatize people. So if there is anyone that is overwhelmed by our work or the things we're going to talk about today, definitely just skip this episode or pass on it. But we are going to share a little bit more about our work and the things that we do and have experienced. Um, But also we are sharing from that context specifically, our own experiences. We obviously are not in any way representing any organization or agencies. And we are also going to, in some situations, be fairly vague in our conversations as far as locations and and, um, locations or groups of people sometimes just for their own safety as well as confidentiality which I am sure that our listeners also completely understand so within those parameters and with those boundaries how do you want to introduce yourself but how do you what do you want to share about who you are and what you do yeah I go by Anne Um, I have been working in the NGO, which is uh, basically a nonprofit, non-government um, a- agency, uh, for the last many three decades, um, and I'm I'm an Amer- I always say I'm an American living now back in America. Uh, my my features make me somehow people think that I'm uh, a lot of times from different countries. So I've lived in. Uh, I've been to 52 countries and I have lived in about five and most places except for in the Scandinavian area, they, they claim me as their own. So I take that as a compliment, but I am an American, uh, grew up in Colorado, uh, with, uh, wonderful things and, and also, uh, a lot of complex trauma as well. I, uh, it was in, at university where I started getting interested in, uh, kind of caring for others and, and the idea of going into uh, the field of service uh, in a more of a humanitarian aid way. I thought I would do it for a couple of years and then go do biology, uh, but it seems to be a really good fit for me. So uh, in a nutshell, that's who we are. And ironically, ironically might not even be the right word, but there are so many of us in the community, especially and and listeners as well. But because in the community, we see each other in Zoom groups and things, there's so often sort of this pull to if we could just meet in person, or if we could, if we could gather somehow, or if there was a way and I know we have healing together is happening. And and we have these different opportunities. And we do try to do meetups. But of all things and all places in the world, we both responded to the earthquake. And that has happened recently in Turkey and Syria. Is there anything that you want to share about your experience there? Yeah, um, of course, it's incredibly heartbreaking and uh, continues, continues. We, uh, much of our work was done in the Turkey region. You just have to go, your heart has to go out to Syria 
because it's been in a war for 11 years. And so, uh, so much of the, the devastation and damage happened because their infrastructure has just been so weak because of that. And it's also where we um, have had trouble getting humanitarian aid in because of uh, political reasons. So it's so, uh, the whole thing is devastating, but to realize that politics are controlling so much of care for people uh, it's that's been challenging. One, I think, glimmer of hope is I don't know how much people know about what's going on in Lebanon, but with the war that's gone on for in Syria for the last 11 years, uh, there's been a lot of refugees in Lebanon, and they're, it's a country of 4 million people, and they have about 2 million refugees and their infrastructure is really bad. And so they're, they're, they're suffering and they have power one to two hours a, a day and high, high inflation, uh, different things. And the first thing that happened when we heard about the earthquake is we, they were able to take shipments of humanitarian aid that were for Lebanon and the Lebanese, uh, have a half a container at the border just waiting, waiting. Uh, for the paperwork to come through. So speaking of giving of need and how quickly those who don't have anything were the first ones to to offer up help is humbling and heartbreaking in many ways. The, the reason that region uh, in Turkey and in Syria, uh, especially in the Turkish region, the I have to be a little careful, but the, the people that live in that area are a minority group that um, that the government doesn't necessarily like. And so the infrastructure there, uh, the buildings were not up to code. The earthquake that happened in 1999 in Turkey changed, actually literally changed the, they had to redraw the map. It was that bad an earthquake. Uh, it killed 25 um, thousand people, and since then, um, since then they've been tearing down buildings and building them up to code. But that whole area that was hit with those two big earthquakes have had none of that because uh, the government basically has ignored them. So even within a country, one country, you see the differences. Uh, when I lived in Turkey which was, I I lived there five years, um, pretty recently back from there. In my neighborhood, every other building was torn down and rebuilt um, for the sake of of earthquakes. What's happening now, many people are still, of course, displaced because they can't get get back into their buildings because they're unsafe. So a lot of families that did survive are staying at either in tents um, or in people's homes. So everybody that I know um, that live, still live in Turkey, have taken people in. Uh, All the schools in all of Turkey are closed and the teachers have been asked to care for the kids. And there's a lot of children, more children survived than adults uh, in the earthquake, probably because of their size. Um, And so we have tons of orphans now. And so the government is basically asking the teachers to to parent them. So 100% of the schools are closed down in all of Turkey. And the schools are now kind of care centers. And then of course, there's makeshift shift hospitals all over. I happen to already have been in Turkey, and it was serendipitous, I guess would be the right word, because we had all of the crisis managers from uh, not only Turkey and Syria, but a lot of the regional um, crisis managers, and we had our humanitarian aid um, arm was there. And so in light of quick deployment, it was a, a fast meeting and deploying, deploying people, deploying money and, um, you know, and, and just equipping things. So the timing of that was really good. I think that this is really good and really helpful. It's hard to explain what we do in our work sometimes because there are things that we cannot talk about and there are things that are difficult to translate from in the field, on the ground experience to just telling the story of the things we're dealing with, even when you're doing it via emails or Zoom meetings or or all the things that happen to make 
aid be deployed or to send aid to a country. And there are things that are really sensitive, like talking about politics. There's so much that we have to be careful what we say just for safety, but also that really impact things like even our own government in America having sanctions on different countries, for example, or or punishing leaders from generations ago that now because of that aid is already missing plus needed and so some countries or areas get more than others and what do people even know about that when what they see is just on the media of this picture or this child being rescued or this video of a rescue but not understanding the context of everything that's going on and then talking about the orphans specifically part of of my job that that is that is tricksy to talk about but is 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 helping sort of um, making sure that they are um, whether whether under UNHCR or under UNICEF, making sure that they are protected because when we have white saviors, for lack of better word, but in talking about culture and privilege of people who see a cute baby on a picture with a really sad story and they want to just go rescue that baby and help them. But these are children. And even if their parents or their families died, they're children of a community and children of a faith tradition and children of a culture. And it's not just that they need us to go in and rescue. Just like when we talk about healthy dynamics in therapy or families, it's the same thing in our work with humanitarian stuff that that we want to empower them as a community to help themselves and to care for their own people. And things like what the teachers are going through right now. I know I've got like 300 kids in a, like still in the hospital because there's nowhere to put them and there's no adults and we don't know yet, frankly, which children even belong with whose. There are kids I have only an address on. And, mm-hmm. and so when we're talking about teachers, it's so unfathomable to like a privileged white American, especially when culture is defined for us so differently as a community here or with privileges that we're not aware of and what is being asked of people there like I'm so glad you survived this earthquake now here is your responsibility for these children that were not yours you're now a foster parent and you're now just to survive and so one of the things you and I were talking about before we started was how the some of the things that we see in our work broadens under our understanding of trauma, not just because of a disaster like an earthquake or because of political stuff happening in the general area or the Middle East or or other things like that, but but the impacts and the layers and historical trauma and collective trauma and all the things happening before the earthquake even hit. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's just it's layer upon layer. I I like what you said and it's we don't when you haven't been in that situation you can't understand it. But when you when you watch it and see it, every time I was every time I would see it, honestly a child pulled out of the rubble, there was celebration and I just kept thinking if they're not cared for and if they're not attended to emotionally, um they're going to, you know, the it's hard to grow up in a healthy way when you've had that level of trauma um and and it's not just a an acute trauma that happened at that point or the time you were in the rubble but it's the living with insecurity of what you know am i afraid to go into a building again because when is the next earthquake um not having your entire family taken away and the culture like you mentioned culture is such an important thing uh you can well it's interesting my my roommate actually well is an orphan from the Ukraine so she she was adopted by an american family at 12 and so living and she's 35 or something now but to to watch her have those lives of still owning being ukrainian and owning being an orphan um and yet um having having a family here and being loved here but you you don't realize how important culture, your language, your food um, is, and that identity just, it's important that we don't just wipe that away. But it's also important that we give people time to be in shock, time to, to not be functional. But one thing you said is 
true. A lot of times when a disaster happens, we have to be careful even how we go in because we rely on the people on the ground to make sure that that we can get in and everything else. And so someone who's already, who's been in shock, who has gone through this themselves, sometimes those coming in to help are putting a demand of, okay, you just went through the shock, but make sure I'm fed or make sure I'm, I have a place. And, and so we were very, very careful when we go into a location that those who are locals but have experienced the trauma um, and are displaced and still suffering and don't know where their family is, that we're not putting extra expectation or pressure on them to care for us coming in. Yes, yeah. And 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 it's certainly not a glamorous job or glamorous work when you're moving into infrastructure that already does not exist or has already been destroyed because of natural disasters or war zones and so it's not like we just get to go I think my kids sometimes think that we just get to go check into a hotel and it's a fun little vacation not understanding that sometimes we don't even have a tent or sometimes like you can't ask people for something for yourself that they don't also have and so when there's no housing i i remember when i responded to puerto rico and the earthquakes just kept coming like they wouldn't stop it just kept coming and sometimes in other situations the disaster isn't what you think it is i responded to a tornado in joplin missouri and i was on the scene there and that was a terrible disaster, partly because of the how big the tornado was and how long it stayed on the ground. But also it hit the tornado siren on the way into town. So people oh. didn't get the warning because it knocked out the system. And so it was just a terrible tragedy. But also after the tornado left, it kept storming. And so we were trying to get people out of the debris, but they were drowning because they were trapped under the water. And so like sometimes the situation changes and that doesn't even count things like war zones which is a whole different ball game as well. Yeah, it's, you know, it doesn't it seem like it's always built on it. It's not just one thing, but it's thing after thing. And part of part of why terrorism works so well is because it's the unknown, it's the surprise. And so natural disasters can be like that too, where it's uh, it's unexpected. And then, like you said, it's not just the one thing, but it builds on it. And there there's a, a sense of, being out of control and not having that sense of security that really uh, is can be very long lasting in everybody's psyche. And war zones are an interesting one too. Um, part of my role was a operations leader for North Africa, Middle East and Central Asia. And I went into a country that has experienced a lot of war and we were we were trying to get them prepared for an audit uh, just to make sure their money was being used well and such. And this man was in a very, the leader uh, was, is a very intelligent man, um, very clever, but he was making really unwise decisions, even just like where you keep his receipt, like simple things, not, not bad things, but just, just a lot, just normal everyday decisions. And as I started interacting with this family and interacting with other staff, and what I realized is when you live in a consistent war zone, if you when you live in a place that's, and I think trauma as kids is the same way, when it's it's always the unknown, it's always that level of, of pressure, a few things happen. One is your prefrontal cortex does go offline. The chemicals that, that get into our system don't allow our brains to remember, and they don't allow our brains to do logic. Because when you're in a fight flight, our goal is to survive, which means those systems that help you do logic or remember are offline so that you can run away from the lion idea. So I started realizing people who are in constant stress um, because of war will not make good choices because physiologically they can't. 
It's such an intense experience. And then as we've talked about on the podcast, when war becomes your baseline, mm-hmm. it changes your perspective. It changes your functioning. And we're talking about these countries and these places and these disasters where this is such a big thing. But it also applies to us who had childhood trauma when Maybe it was a different kind of war zone, but still growing up in that kind of environment where we did not have safety or where scarcity was our baseline or where a lack of emotional connection was our baseline or where neglect was our baseline. When we don't have our basic needs met, we cannot function and grow and develop in the way that we need to, to be healthy and happy and well. It's so true because... Because it does, like the chemicals that are released so that we do appropriate fight, flight, and freeze to survive, do not allow our brains to develop, do not allow our emotions to develop. Because when you're surviving, you're not developing. And because developing is, is, in a sense, a luxury. It's needed, but it is a luxury. And when you're just surviving, whether it's childhood trauma or war zones or these a horrific thing like an an earthquake that's killed so way too many people it it changes it changes how we do things it changes how we think and that's it's measured differently too so when you hear on the news about 33,000 people have died it doesn't count how many are injured or homeless or impacted or that it's entire communities wiped out or entire families wiped out and the impact of that on the areas around them. There's there's so many different ways that it shows up. Yeah, the, I, I agree. It's The impact is multiplied so many times over because it's not, first of all, you know, when you say 33,000, it's like, oh, well, that's over there. But when it is your community and you're, when you see the buildings and it's like that's 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 where I used to live you know so so there's you that's untangible and it affects so much yeah it also you know just the idea of survivor's guilt um which you know like even someone like myself can feel but uh, those there that you know, why did I, I live and my husband die? Or why did, um, you know, just why did this family survive and the family right next to me didn't? Just that concept of survival's guilt, too, is is really deep and just doesn't go away um, quickly. And aspects of culture in that, too, in very family-centered cultures. I even had... Um, infants rescued and heard people say rescued for what for what what is left for them now because everything is passed down it's not just the buildings like where are they going to live but everything is passed down through families through culture through faith practice and so for them it an orphan is not just does not have parents it's like capital o orphan does not have anything does not have anything that makes us, from from their cultural perspective, the things that make us human, the things that make us become who we are here to be. Yeah, that's so true, because they're so much more family-oriented uh, than I've experienced here in the U.S., um, even though there's some families that are families, but the, there it really is uh, very tight. And it's not just your mom and dad, but it's your grandma and grandpa. And um, like even in many of the Arabic speaking countries, you ask someone their last name and they say, well, it depends. And because they their last name is their father and then their grandfather and their great grandfather. And many times they'll do five to seven last names because they've gone back that many generations. Yes. And the idea of I know my heritage so much that I can say, you know, it is, it's my last name. It's my family name is, it is that generation. You know, that is just a, a, a small understanding of how important not only your immediate family is, but that extended family. 
which goes back to survivor's guilt as well for those who even were adults and lost their children because to them that is the future and not just the future as in the next generation but the future of their faith and the future of their culture and sometimes the future of the language and so it's so devastating beyond just the destruction of buildings or or the the breaking of roads these are the breaking of hearts and the destruction of generations yeah you know the why do i live you know and or boy you're lucky that you got out and like they don't feel lucky you know that life when, yeah when you've lost everything valuable and precious to you you know one father who was hoping for his uh wife and three children to be uncovered under the rubble which i don't believe they ever were he said why i don't have anything to live for they you know they were my hope they were my future yeah I, uh, in a different country, um, I was helping with the crisis that we had where uh, we had some bad people come into the compound and shoot different people and then set a bomb. So we lost, uh, we lost five people, including a father and two children. And so the, the mother was actually at the hospital. Um, she was a doctor. And so um, the family dog survived, um, and she survived, but you know, that she's like, what I, I wish I would have been there too. I wish I don't want to live without, without my family. And that's something I don't, I don't know if we can ever fully experience that until it's taken from us. There's so much loss and so much grief in the work that we do even while we are there trying to provide not just hope but capacity for hope i like that i like that word the capacity for hope cuz it's and it's word that i've heard said in the community a lot but just give space um and you have to give space for grief and you have to give space for unproductivity you have to give space for the depth of pain that you can't fix. I, I think sometimes we want to fix it or we want to make people feel better instead of just saying, I'm just here with you. I'm just here to have you not be as alone. And yeah, give people that ability to connect even a little bit with another human, even if they don't want to connect, but having a presence that is undemanding of them. Uh, it's simply a presence who has care can touch their humanity. Uh, sometimes where when you're in trauma, you kind of can lose that humanity or you disassociate from it. So I, I think that's one of the biggest things we can offer Emma is, uh, is, is that presence and, you know, providing that cold cup of water sometimes. It's not fancy, it's the simple stuff. I think that's true in our own therapeutic process as well though. And in, in that there are times when I know our family's been through something really difficult or, or therapy has been really difficult or something and not at all to minimize these big terrible things that we've been talking about, but even on that level of people who just want to make us feel better or like for example just to make things more neutral again like after our parents died and people were around us in the community were just as shocked as we were that it was just bam bam that we lost both parents so fast and and um especially the the unexpected death when our mother was killed by the drunk driver and so people would like want to distract me or want to um, make it better. Like you can't fix that. My mother was squashed. You can't fix that. And I don't actually want you to take it away from me because all of the complications of those feelings and all the complicated feelings that there are, and even though they're really difficult things to untangle, they're mine. And it's the last, that's all that I have now. So I don't need you to take it away. I just need to feel that. I just need to be present in that. I need to figure out what does that mean to myself, for myself. And I think the same thing is true of trauma sometimes. 
that yes, we want to feel better and yes, we want to heal and yes, we want to get better, but also we need therapists and friends and supportive people like in group, for example, where we are just present with each other in that. We can't change what has happened. We can't make it go away. We can't make it never have happened. This has happened. The earthquake did hit and then hit again. Tornadoes happen and then rain keeps coming. Floods happen, tsunamis happen. Sometimes the world is not safe enough and we grieve and we hurt and terrible things happen. But also I would not change for anything the growth and the healing I have found through facing those hard things. It doesn't make those hard things okay. It doesn't make those hard things good even sometimes, you know? It's not that we have to have the toxic positivity of looking on the bright side or finding the good in what was hard, but looking for that how everything works for the good, like how it all works together, right? And and finding space to create hope where there was not hope before, even while mourning such losses. Yeah, those are great words because you're not making it better. You're creating space where there can be growth. Kind of like if a forest just is burned and it's all you see is black and soot. It's the it's horrible and yet that's where growth can come. There can be a rebirth. Um but it, but I think one of the worst things we can say when you're uh, caring for someone who's at loss is is to remind them that, oh, something good will come from this. You know, that's when you just want to punch someone in the face. But <laughs> but to but to hold that space where there can be hope. I uh, I had some friends. They became dear friends. They kept coming to Turkey to to do uh, medical care for their, their two-year-old daughter. And then they ended up going to Germany for a special treatment. And through that, I became very good friends with them. And, and Amelia died at, at two years and 10 months. And so I, I flew there to help with the process of, you know, all the stuff you have to do to, to bury someone. And, and I would spend time with the couple and what I realized is um, when we were together, things happened, but I, I would make sure I spent, I would get up in the morning because that's when the husband was awake and we would talk because I, it was just space. And then in the evening, I would stay awake. So that's when the wife would talk. And what I realized when I first got there and we just, I just, we just, well, we hugged each other and then. I just gave space where I didn't say anything. I wasn't trying to make it better. I wasn't trying to ask questions or understand. I I just gave space. And what I realized is to care for someone, all you really have to do is be there. You don't really even have to say anything. And and it give it gave each of them individually that ability to 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 talk. And when they were ready and without demand of what needed to be said. So I wasn't asking questions that they felt obligatory to, to do. And, and of course, that was incredibly heavy time, especially when we were planning the service and looking for the, the grave site. And, and there was sometimes so much that, you know, you just needed to go to sleep because you're so tired. But then I noticed we would we played games and we laughed and there was a weird guilt. But to balance out the depth of grief, there had to be times of, of lightness in there uh, just to survive. And that was an amazing thing where you can't find hope in that and yet you can find space in that. And so being there but not demanding questions um or needing someone to talk but just to just to hold that presence i think that that is our greatest gift of simply being present with each other and that what we give is presence 
And what we give is that in the midst of suffering, I'm here with you. So mm -hmm. you don't have to be alone in this. I can't change what's happened. I can't make the disaster go away. I can't undo the trauma, but I can be with you so you're not alone in it. And you know, when, when I get deployed, sometimes I'm there to do psychosocial support training. Sometimes I'm there for psychological first aid. Sometimes I'm there as an ethicist. Sometimes I'm there for um, whatever they ask me to do and then it's never what they really need. And I'm, I'm there to give the cup of water. Sometimes I'm there as a chaplain. Sometimes I'm there to do services. Sometimes I'm there to get in the rubble with them and dig out because that's what matters. You know, you don't stop to ask those questions, but always, always, it's about what people need. Yeah. And the thing in all of those situations that's consistent is that they need presence of an other. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that when we offer that healing comes into that space and hope comes into that space even with grief filling that space. No, that, that's beautifully said, Emma, because when we suffer, there is something that we suffer alone because only, only, only I can feel my pain and my pain is going to feel worse than your pain because I'm the one that feels it. And so there is, by, by almost the definition of suffering, whether it's at a mass scale like this earthquake or whether it's family trauma or the loss of a child, there is a sense of aloneness. And yet, like you said, you're stepping in where they need it and that there's no prescription for that because it is going to be sometimes, you know, pressing someone's shirt or going shopping to look for what they're going to wear to a funeral or giving water. But one thing I've heard you say multiple times, I want to just highlight it, is it's what the other person needs yes. and and yes. being sensitive to, to their situation at the time. And you mentioned, which I agree, is, you know, sometimes people want it just to be over. You want to feel, have you feel better. And I'm pretty confident that when someone wants me to feel better, what they really want is for them not to feel bad. And, and so I think sometimes our pushing towards someone getting over it or feeling better or not hurting has more to do with, I don't want to hurt, therefore I can't see you hurt. And so I, I think it's really important that we identify that in ourselves of when am I doing this for me rather than for that person that I've, been called to uh, to serve and to uh, to care for. Absolutely, part of being a therapist, part of being a chaplain, part of being a friend is being comfortable with discomfort, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And even in our community groups, when we're supporting each other in this peer support format, there are times where I see people wanting to to rescue others, which is not the same as reassuring others, which we do want to be responsive and reassure, but also it's okay to be uncomfortable. And when there is silence, we don't have to fill the silence. And when people are ready to share or need to share, they're going to. We don't have the kind of groups where everyone needs to be called on because we're not there to fill up the space. We're, we're there to hold the space. It's true. And, you know, what does it look like to be a safe individual? And what does it look like, honestly, to, uh, to create a safe environment? And Emma, I think you do that, you know, you put a, a have a higher feeling of responsibility that with the, with the group. Um, but also, um, like I do it as a, as a leader um, with my team is what does it look like to have a, a safe environment for a team? Or when you're doing 
humanitarian aid or going into to help what what does it look like for for you know me and my system to make myself safe but then to say i am i'm going to choose to make this a safe environment um as it's as as it's my as i can obviously there's things out of outside of our control but of the things that are in our control how do i be proactive with uh being safe to myself which is a big learning curve um but also safe to those around of of who we've been you know who's in our circle or who's in our care for whatever reason well and that's what builds community at its very most basic foundation right is we agree together that this is a safe place so what does that mean to you what does that mean to me and what does that mean about how we treat each other and i think in a community setting um there's the knowledge that we will do it wrong uh again there's not we're not perfect and so what does it look like to also allow repair um and realize you know what who or what is not safe and can that be rectified or does it need to be not uh more cleaned up but also to 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 have the freedom of saying i i messed up and um you know can we have repair i feel like uh i feel like the politics in america have brought a lot of division where either you agree with me or i or you're my enemy and um we don't have the warring like we do in a lot of places but we certainly have division and so what does it look like to be to be a safe person to where um i'm i'm willing to risk uh repair when it's appropriate i'm reflecting on that and how that's such a personal level being practiced at a community level but also applies to whole countries and regions that have been at war since forever yeah yeah i mean even look at again going back to the earthquake thousands of people have died because they were the wrong people group or they were the wrong fraction and and you know and the, even the war that's going on with Syria and what you see in Lebanon and and uh you know the suffering that's going on even before a natural disaster has a lot to do with if there was willingness to to have repair communities would be different we're experiencing that with the humanitarian aid as well in that right now by default because of the earthquake there are doors open to places we've not had access to for years and so mm-hmm. in our community as far as humanitarian aid community there's this urgency of we've got to get it in while we can get it get it get it go push it push it you know and try to get through because that can close at any minute and we don't know when we even have access again and those people have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and so it yeah. it emphasizes the urgency of not delaying care that that is neglect oh that's so true like a lot of the people that are there now have been there and you know said the same thing this is finally an opportunity where we can get in stuff where uh we it's been blocked you know what the because of sanctions or or whatever else and so yeah to get it's it's an urgent because once it's in there especially if you have the right people uh distributing it and and working on it well there's uh, there's a lot of abuse that can happen too um but this is the time you know yeah let's let's do it and it yeah i you know, the ukraine still there's a, a lot of need there i i was actually talking to a guy that's doing humanitarian aid there and every time he leaves the country he has permission but he comes back with at least 250 tons of of humanitarian aid but things right now the attention is in the spot and next week people are going to forget about it so while it's open while the there's people willing to give and we're where the UN and governments are willing to 
kind of turn a blind eye to get get aid there. This is the time to act. I wish I was going with you, by the way, Emma. We would be a fine pair, wouldn't we? I think we would, really. Um, I I love caring for people, and uh, but you know it's where you're supposed to be at that that time. But I I just recognizing, you know, humans, no matter what your political situation or your background, your culture, your your spiritual faith, whatever, humans have some basic truths. You know, we need we need food and shelter, we need purpose, and we need love, we need community. And when you have those things, that's what makes us human. You remove one of those things, and that's where you be more animalistic instead of humanistic. And and so to, to be able to step in and help remind people of their humanness um, is it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see someone go from that that just doing animalistic urges because because they have so much taken away to to experiencing who they've been created to be just that that human side. Well, and how true is that for any of us when we have parts of ourselves that act out or lash out or are harmful in efforts to protect from further harm or outside harm in ways that are just because we're hurting or because those parts of us are hurting. But when we tend to them or listen to them, how much healing comes and how much that shifts so that that protection is more effective. And the same thing in whole cultures and countries. And again, the potential for healing is so, so basic when it's simply need meeting. Yes, yes, and it does. And and I think sometimes maybe those with trauma in our background forget the need for self-care and need, in a sense, to put the mo- as- oxygen mask on ourselves first <laughs> kind of idea because we will wound others if we're pushing too hard our humanitarian aid leader was talking to some of the people going back for the relief efforts and he was he gave them filters water filters and he looked at them very directly and said take these filters and you you have you keep one you have a filter don't give them all away because if we're not caring for ourselves there's a there's a basic need that we if we're only if we're denying ourselves, we're going to wound ourselves, but also those around us at, at the end of the day. But I think that's hard to do. At least it's been hard to do for me of what it looks like to, to be kind to myself and care for myself. That's been a, a journey that I'm still on. It's a hard thing. I think those of us on these teams have not even slept much since the earthquake, and especially those of us on the ground still, or again, there, there's while lives are literally in the balance, there is no sleep. It is dig, you dig. Yeah. And, and, and you, those of us in like further away or running ops or something, it's notifying families or it's talking to people or it's all these things and it's checking on your own teams and trying to do all of this. And I, I was talking to my girlfriend of like, I, this week, like I, I've, I'm at such a panic level that I have not been in in years and I can't bring it down because this one in particular, there's so many layers that are so sensitive and we cannot make mistakes or people die. And it feels like so much pressure. And then in the same sentence, I was like, but it's okay because I'm going to hit up Poland on the way home. And she's like stopped me and was like, you don't hit up Poland on the way home. Like, that's not a thing. That's not how it goes. But it's like in this world, that's that's what this world is. When you're in this, in this effort of humanitarian aid, that's literally what it's like. Poland and Romania or like whatever... Ukraine is next door, not really on the map, but when you're trying to prioritize needs that are so equal, you can't 
you can't yeah. prioritize when the need is so great. And so I think the same thing applies to ourselves when, when we do need to do self-care so that we can be helpful, so that we can be okay ourselves, but also that our needs matter too. And even if we are not in crisis or cannot compare traumas, it's just different kinds of traumas. They all need healing. No trauma is okay. Yeah. And so we can't start comparing, oh, well, my trauma doesn't count because it wasn't this kind of trauma or I, this, this thing was, should not be such a big deal because it's nothing like what this other person went through. Like we can't do that. Trauma is trauma, period. And we all need healing and we all need to be well and care for ourselves and, and respond to ourselves, people, listeners know my faith tradition or, or that we have this faith tradition and, and you know, the, the, the thing that gets twisted so often is like that you need to care for other people like Jesus cares for other people. Like he never said to care for other people instead of yourself. Well, Jesus got up early and went away. Like he, he, he spent time by himself, you know? So I think actually, yeah, the, the, the pressure is sometimes of not caring for ourselves because yeah, like with a faith tradition of the expectations of how to serve, um, or a family that didn't value, um, maybe us as a person, um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons, but at the end of the day, we have to learn what it looks like to do it. And it's going to be different when you're, uh, you know, serving and deployed, it's going to look different. You're probably not going to go to a cafe and drink coffee and read a nice book. Um, <laughs> but what does it look like to say, you know what, I need to stop and lay down for 10 minutes or I'm going to go take a deep breath or, um, you know what, I'm going to have some hot tea and that will keep us longer. And it also keeps us not being a casualty. But I've thought so much about the people that are digging through the rubble and pulling people out and how exhausted they are. And yet there's that compulsion to keep digging, you know, especially when time is, and I know it's times past now, but especially that first week when, you know, truly every, every minute counts, but to, to say, how am I balancing that with, with, enough care for myself to to be able to keep going and being able to do it again i mean if we don't learn to care for ourselves we won't it'll be a diminishing return um on what you can do for others for sure and and i think that when there's so much that's so urgent in any context it's hard to remember no, there is time to care for me. I have to care for me. And the needs don't go away. The needs change shape because the needs aren't the problem. And I think those of us who grew up with trauma forget that because we think we're bad because we have needs. The needs are not yep. the problem. There are needs because we're humans, all of us, yep. all of us. And so we all have needs and there's always going to be needs but caring for myself well and caring for others and taking naps. I'm totally a fan of naps. Naps are the best. <laughs> Jesus was the king of naps. Like <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so important. And so like, what can I do just today? And my capacity today may be different than my capacity tomorrow or my capacity yesterday. And that's okay because it's just about just today and my needs and other people's needs and caring for others as I would care for myself. And not even comparing like today versus yesterday, but also myself with another person. Um, and, you know, I, I compare my weaknesses with your strengths, you know, so we don't even compare in a wise way. But to say, well, this person can can go ten hours straight and don't need doesn't need to eat and never cries, and you think, well, gosh, what do I have to offer? When in reality, all that's doing is putting more pressure on ourselves. So not comparing ourselves from yesterday to today, but also 
this person versus that person. And my guess is instead of celebrating, it's like celebrating that person could do that even if I can't. Um, and also recognizing that what I'm bringing to the table, especially when I'm in a healthy way, is is going to be different than someone else. So instead of comparing and and wondering why am I not as good as that person, is to celebrate our differences, our our different strengths, and even our weaknesses, and how they can you know our, my strengths and weaknesses can go together. So. But comparing ourselves is a really, it's a killer. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't breed anything good, in my opinion. Well, it's also not valid, right? Because when we look at others, what we see is content. Mm. Or what, we, yeah. what we experience within ourselves is process. And you can't compare content and process. That's the same as people who compare themselves to social media. You're comparing process to content. And you can't. So when people, even even if people read our book or listen to the podcast or see us in the community, you can't compare or invalidate your own experiences just because it's not the same as ours. Everyone's yeah. is different and your experience is entirely valid. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. And I think that should be underlined and highlighted. Like you said, it's like me comparing my traumas to yours or me compare, you know, us comparing something to what happens in Turkey, or how do you compare what happened to Turkey to what happened in Syria? How do you compare that to what's happened in the Ukraine? It's like, it doesn't, tragedy is tragedy, and pain is pain. And, and to just say, you know, maybe this is bigger or, or smaller, maybe this lasts longer, but to to rather than compare just to say i'm i'm going to i'm going to be in this space and i think an individual trauma whether it's bigger or smaller than someone next door to me or my trauma is bigger or smaller than something's happened in turkey right now that's that's a dangerous game to play and and so to to really like you said don't compare strengths and weaknesses but and but i i just want to underline the idea that we don't compare pain or trauma it doesn't it doesn't do any good in fact it all i think only breeds harm it causes misattunement within ourselves mm. when we when we become our own perpetrator in validating our own traumas and our own experiences and then we have a rupture with ourself and we have misattunement with ourself. And there, it's so, so important that we hold space for what our experience is and what we choose to do with that and how we respond to that and tend to it. You know, I'm from Oklahoma and we have those tornadoes there. And sometimes I imagine in my head when all of this, like all of these needs or all of these demands or this urgency or the crises or my children or, or any of these, like all the things, right? Like I could get caught up and swept up in the tornado of all of these things. And I just have to imagine myself in the eye of the storm, in the middle of it, pushing the walls of the tornado further away from me. And that is what I do, whether I am parenting or whether it's in the community or whether that is in my own life or whether it is in an assignment or deployment or as a chaplain or as a therapist. I just hold, that's what holding space is about. It's not just, oh, I'm here and you have this amount of time and we can talk about this. It is, I am, I've got the walls. I've got the walls. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to be here. I have peace in me. I am who I am, and that is my truth. And in this space, you also can push those walls back and have space, and together we make that space bigger and bigger until there's room for all of us in it. And it doesn't matter what's swirling around us. In the eye of the storm, together, we're okay. We're safe. I like that. I like that a lot. I keep thinking, too, it's like sometimes I feel this balance of being too other-centered um, so that we're not caring for ourselves. And then the flip side of that is someone who's maybe narcissistic and kind of can only see in. But that idea that we're holding holding the storm back 
so we're caring for ourselves, but also looking, looking out to others. I don't know. How, how do you, how do you not fall into the fear of being narcissistic with wanting to care for yourself? Because self-indulgence and self-care are not the same thing. Boom. Well spoken. Those narcissistic sort of approaches are are harmful not only to to myself but those around me. So it goes back to like the fruit of the tree, right? Like you can see when there is good and when people are giving good to each other and giving good to themselves, that is reflected. There's evidence of that. And when they don't, there's evidence of that. So I think it's easier to discern than we realize. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the fruit shows. I I knew it was time for, I knew when I was starting to not care for myself because uh, what went through my mind is why am I the only one sacrificing? And, and gratefully for me, that was uh, a realizing that, that, uh, that it wasn't about me, but it means I wasn't caring for myself. But uh, yeah, I like your, I, I like what you said about the the differences. I, I learned that piece the hard way with my family, right? Because yeah. I had a husband with depression, which is not tattling on him. That's his, like he shares that openly. I had children who came to me with trauma, adopted from foster care with all their special needs and had urgent crises and literal life and death situations. And I gave and I gave and I gave and I cared and I cared and I cared. And then the pandemic hit and I lost all the support that was helping me do those things because of lockdown, right? And then because of our daughter, we had that extended quarantine and my husband had to go care for his parents. So I had two years single parenting and giving and giving and giving. And then when everything was okay again, and we were out of crisis and they were back in school and the husband was okay with the parents, then I was like, okay, wow, time out. We need to tend to this. And in that case, it was interesting that taking a deployment was self-care for a break from that intense care, not to abandon my family or the children and not to run away or avoid or dissociate from any of that, but that this was a specific season and that specific season has come to a close. And to care for myself, I have to shift what my work is and I have to shift where I am and care for myself. And, you know, we talk about that coming up in episodes people haven't heard yet, but it was a scary process because it felt like I'm letting everyone down. Mm -hmm. And it was scary because it was messy at first while everyone around me adjusted. But since then, with all the changes we have made, everybody in our family is much better off. Yeah, I, I think it's common in particular with, I would say with moms, and someone said it's probably women in general, is by the kind of who we are, are in essence, our caregivers, uh, typically. And so the idea of giving and even sacrificially giving, um, anybody that's, I haven't, but anybody that's had a a baby, I mean, you're, you're, you're sacrificially, you know, a host to this, this alien for nine months. (laughs) Um, but we, we naturally give and there, I, I hear it so, so much. Um, it's, I think easy for women in particular to feel guilty for caring for themselves because this idea that they need to care for others. And what you see is when you shift to, I'm caring for myself in a healthy way, not a narcissistic way. Um, and I'm letting balls drop where others have to pick it up. At the end of the day, the unit is healthier because as someone who's not giving to in a in an inappropriate way is also giving space for others to to need to own it. And um, so I, I think sometimes the family unit is healthy is healthier because people have to pick up the pieces 
And so, you know, you got away and it adjusted itself. I think sometimes that's the best thing to do is to to let other people have to take the load. This is all such good discussion and I am so grateful for you coming to talk with us. Is there anything we did not get to address that you did want to cover or talk about tonight? There's billions of things that have come through my mind, but um, I just want to kind of end with a, a story. Yes. It is, uh, one of the roles that I've played is to, uh, to go into a specific country in Central Asia to, um, I was basically the heading up the foundation that, that was how money got in. So I was platformed and they asked me to go to a woman's prison and uh, speak and hand out what they call Lulu pads, but they're, they're basically recyclable feminine hygiene products that can be uh, uh, washed and put in the sun to, to be sanitized because this happened this prison, the beds were being disappearing because the women were using that um, for their hygiene. And they said, you know, please hand out this and then speak to them and give them hope. I said, how do you give hope to women who are in 15 years to life? Their kids are in with them because in that part of the world, husbands wouldn't take care of the kids. So if the women, well, a lot of the women had killed their husbands because of the abuse they had, but no one would take care of their kids, so their kids are in prison with them. And I thought, how do you give hope in a different language, in a different culture? And I don't know what I said, honestly, but in the middle of my little speech, someone in the crowd yelled, we know that you care. And um, I don't know if that was translated or she said it in English because I had a translator with me and an interpreter with me. And I thought, doesn't that say it all? It doesn't. Our circumstances sometimes won't change. They weren't getting out of prison. Um, I gave maybe at least they could keep their their beds to sleep on. But what what made the difference is I gave attention and gave presence. And I think I I, I want to end with that piece because um, as we were talking about comparing. Someone might be listening to this and like, well, I'm not deployed. I don't get, you know, get to, I, I don't have to go over to these places and, and tend to war towing places. And it's important to say, what, what is your, what is your caring for yourself in the environment and the place that you put it in? Uh, you know, how are you caring for yourself and what is it that you can do today to touch another person's life so that you can give either help give hope or like you so eloquently said space for hope so we're all we're all about caring for others it's just sometimes some of us do it in crazier ways than others i'm not necessarily healthy (laughs) my therapist still has the question of why is war your baseline so i'll keep working on that I'll keep working on that, but I'm so grateful that you talked with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Saints and Humans, a podcast for chaplains, even those of us who are very human and still learning to become saints. You can follow us by subscribing to the podcast on any podcast player. Thank you.